Most of you know that I invest in real estate. I've flipped several houses, and that will teach you a lot about working with contractors. My first, my first uh, flip that I did, I had to fire a general contractor who still owes me six grand. I'm not bitter. Well, t- truth be told, the, the electrician who he had supposedly paid and hadn't paid, and I decided to split the loss, and so quite technically he owes each of us three grand. I'm only three grand worth of bitter, right? But, but I tell you what, I, 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 people will say, you know, have you ever lost money on a real estate investment? No, I've never lost money on a real estate investment, but I have paid dearly for my education a few times, right? Uh, and that's what it is. It's, it's learning because now I handle things a little bit differently than I did that first time. You see, when somebody tells you something and they, they maybe shake your hand and they say, well, we'll get it done. That commitment is only as good as the person who is looking you in the eye and saying that, right? I mean, that commitment is only as good as that person is reliable, Well, I'm glad to announce to you this morning that we serve a reliable God, a faithful God, a trustworthy God. And that is seen in His commitments. And so the series that we're going to be participating in really all throughout the year is a series that highlights some of these these foundational commitments that God made in the form of a covenant. Now, why is it important for us to study the covenants? Well, we'll start with kind of some introductory information, and then as we move through it later, we'll we'll delve into a little bit more uh, why these covenants are of the utmost importance. I do have notes. I do have slides, and they're not here, so I do not know what in the world is going on. Uh, Give me just one second. Sorry. My apologies. Okay, well, you have notes in front of you. You do not have notes on the screen. I have no idea why. That's all right. So you have some notes there in front of you. You can fill in some things. You can write in the margin if there's additional things that are important. The word, uh, the, the Hebrew word that, that, we come, that comes into our Bible in the word covenant is, occurs in 27 different Old Testament books. In 27 Old Testament books. Now that's, that's a pretty significant theme that runs throughout the Old Testament. And what we'll see is this, this is a, a theme that is repeated, it is rehearsed, it comes back again in the New Testament, but it is a, it is a foundation stone to the Old Testament. So the, the Greek word <clears throat> that, that comes through is, is uh, used in 11 different books. So put differently, the word covenant is used 284 times in the Old Testament, 284 times in the Old Testament and 33 times in the New Testament. 33 times in the New Testament. Now, it probably doesn't surprise you that seven of those times, it's a New Testament writer who is quoting an Old Testament passage, and he's citing that covenant <clears throat> that, was, that was, uh, was, was given there in the Old Testament. So, it kind of depends on which translation of the Bible you're using, um, exactly how many times it occurs in English. What I just gave you is the underlying original language Word, but it should be about around 300 times. There's some words, sometimes the word is translated as, for example, league or, or, or some, some other word that's a synonym with agreement, um, but give, it, give or take around 300 times in your English Bible, uh, depending on which translation uh, you're using. The covenants are, are hugely important. They are really a key. Culturally, they were something that was very important to the ancient Near East culture. And so when we see these come across in the Old Testament, we tend to not have an appreciation for for the depth, for the importance, for for how significant these covenants were. But those who were living in that cultural context would have understood the weight of something like a covenant. They were very important in a Near Eastern culture in which the Old Testament was was acted out and, and written. So what was part of a covenant? And, and this, um, sorry, you won't see it on the screen here, but, but uh, there were some elements that typically were part of a covenant. There was a formal ceremony.
So there was some sort of a, a ceremony that made this covenant official. So there was a ceremony. There was, there was some sort of a pronouncement that, that these parties are now in covenant. They are, are, are linked together in this relationship. There was an official pronouncement of a covenant. So there was a ceremony. There was a pronouncement. There were conditions that were usually given. So thirdly, there were conditions that were given as part of the covenant. And by the way, I'm highlighting these for you because as you read through the biblical covenant, you're going to see these. If you're looking for them, you'll say, oh, well, I probably wouldn't have noticed that. But, but now knowing how important these elements were to the formation of a covenant in the Near Eastern culture, I see that. So you've got a ceremony, you've got a pronouncement, you have conditions of the covenant, thirdly. And the parties that were involved would take some sort of an oath. That was the fourth thing that was, was typically part of the, the procedure, the, the ceremony of a covenant. There was an oath. that These parties would take an oath to one another and to their covenant commitments. They would then seal that oath, fifthly, with a token. There was often even a physical token that was representative. It was a, it was a small thing that, that represented, that encapsulated, that embodied the commitments that had been made in that ceremony. There was a, a token, often a, a physical uh, thing. It could have been something as simple as, as a monument that was erected in order to mark off that covenant commitment. There was a token. And typically there were witnesses. There may have been one witness, there may have been multiple witnesses, but there were, there were the ones that witnessed the, the taking of the oath. Now, when the, when the covenant was with God, you'll often see God himself acting as his own witness, right? What does the New Testament writer say? When he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. Right? I mean, that, that is the, the pinnacle of witnesses. And often in the, in the literature, even the extra biblical literature, we will see covenants that were formed and they would call upon the gods, even in pagan cultures, they would call upon the gods to witness the oath that they had made. But then there were often human witnesses as well that attested to what was taking place. And so these Six elements you'll see come up. You would see them even if you started studying ancient Near Eastern covenant relationships. But you see them also in the biblical text as well. So I'll repeat them again in case you didn't get them all down. There was a formal ceremony. There was an official pronouncement. There were conditions of the covenant that were articulated. There was an oath taken on the part of those that entered in the covenant. There was a token that represented the covenant and there were there was a witness or witnesses. And do you understand that this is crucial to understanding the Old Testament because the entire relationship with Israel, the entire relationship with Israel revolved around what? A covenant, right? I mean, you've ever heard of the Mosaic covenant? I mean, this is what inaugurated this corporate relationship with Yahweh, Jehovah, the one true God. And so when, when you're reading through your Old Testament, you are thick in the context of covenant. Whether you recognize it or not, the entire relationship with Israel revolved around a covenant. So what then is a covenant? Well, it is a binding and solemn agreement to do or to keep from doing a specified thing. It's a commitment to do or to keep from doing a specified thing. In the Old Testament culture, it was legally binding, right? They didn't have, you know, contracts where you'd go to a lawyer, you'd have a lawyer draw up a contract and there'd be somebody there to notarize it and you sign here and you sign here. Instead, the, the legally binding that the legal force was in the form of these covenants. Now, make no mistake, there's much more to it than just a legal commitment, but it was that watershed. It was that, that indispensable element, a legally binding obligation. Now, it's important, as you think about the definition of a covenant, 
to recognize that this was entry into a relationship. This was the formalization of a relationship. So that's a key word that you want to be thinking about. You might want to write that down, is, is relationship. The covenant was that which bound people, which bound parties together in a relationship. And they were all different kinds of relationships. We're going to develop that as we go a little bit further to give, to give the context. But it was an agreement between two parties which committed them together, which bound them together in relationship. Now, we make promises to each other in our day. We sign contracts in our day. But neither of those, I mean, there's, there's overlap, right? I mean, there is some elements of our contractual relationship. There are some elements of our promises that carry into our understanding of covenant. But understand that this concept of covenant goes much, much deeper. It, it, it goes much further. And, and the problem is we're just a little bit handicapped in that our culture doesn't utilize covenants on, with any kind of regularity. So it would be good for us to think for a moment about the one remaining covenant that has survived the centuries that we continue to observe even today. There is one relationship that is a covenant relationship that has survived the millennia, and that is the covenant of marriage. That's right. All right, so, so marriage is the, the best example that we have in our modern thinking and our modern understanding of what a covenant is. Now, do you remember the, the elements that I told you of a covenant? Or do you have them written down in front of you? Right? There's a formal ceremony. Like People don't just say, hey, let's run down, you know, run down to the cul-de-sac and say something to each other and then we're good. Right? There's this sometimes huge right, and expensive entourage and, and all of this pomp that surrounds a wedding. I mean, it's a big deal usually. Right? There is a formal ceremony. Why is that? Because two people are, are entering into a covenant, and that is no small thing. There is a formal ceremony that seals that covenant. There is an official pronouncement, isn't there? Right? So at the end of doing a wedding ceremony, I will say, by the power vested in me by the state of Texas and as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I now pronounce... I mean, why do we need all that verbiage? Right? Really? I mean, I just say, you're married. No, no, no. There is an official pronouncement. I mean, it, 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 it is intended to give weight to signify how significant what is about to be said is. Right? By the power vested in me by the state of Texas and as a minister of the gospel of peace, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, I now pronounce you man and wife. Like big stinking deal. Right? It is. It's a big deal. These two are now joined together in covenant through that pronouncement. You remember the third thing? There are conditions. Right? I mean, this is what this whole, like, will you? Yes, I will. Will you? I do. Right? That's what that's all about. It's like there, are, there is a, an entire orb of context. You know, forsaking all others. Like, I'm committing to not do certain things. I'm committing to do certain things. There are conditions that we are entering into when we covenant together. And what is, what is that that we do? Well, repeat after me. I so-and-so take so-and-so to be my lawfully wedded, right? All that, right? Repeat after me. What are we doing? You're taking an oath. I mean, you're taking an oath before, before God and, oh yeah, witnesses. That I'm going to keep my covenant obligation to this person that I am entering into a relationship with. And then you seal that with this little expensive rock, <laughs> right? It's mounted in this gold sphere. And that is offered as what? 
as a token of the covenant. The ring doesn't make you married. I could take that and put it on a child. They wouldn't be married. Likewise, I could, I don't know, actually know if I can take my ring off, but hypothetically, I, I can't take it off. <laughs> That's probably a good thing. Right. Uh, but, but hypothetically, I could take my ring off and I would, I would still be married. I would still be in covenant obligation. But this ring is a symbol that represents all that is embodied in the covenant. Now are you beginning to see the, the depth, the seriousness, the weight that is accompanied by the word covenant? Now, there is kind of a tangential application here, right? Christians of all people should understand the seriousness, the weight, the commitment that comes with the covenant called marriage. And that's not really the point of our study, but it is important that Christians understand that, that there is much more to the biblical dimension of understanding what marriage is than even the world can understand, even though, even though the relics of it are still in our culture. We understand what a covenant is, and that ought to impact the respect, the honor that we have for the institution of marriage. By the way, as, as the world increasingly tries to redefine marriage, there is a movement that suggests that perhaps Christians should start calling it something different and the suggestion that has been floated is covenant marriage to express, no, 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 what we mean is not what the world legally defines as marriage. What we mean is what the Bible defines as marriage. So that's our tangent for the morning, but it is, it is important. So when two people or two parties enter into covenant together, they are bound together in relationship. They have this ceremony with the pronouncement and the, and the oaths and the token as to the relationship. So what are the different types of covenants? Well, you have some things there that you want to be thinking about as you kind of ferret through the, the Old Testament covenants. We can kind of break it down into two major categories. The first is a covenant between equals. A covenant between equals. So, so two people are, are peers. They are, they are equal to one another. It, it is sometimes called the, the parity covenant. This is where two sides voluntarily enter into a covenant. This would be like a partnership. I'll do this if you do this, and you'll do this if I do this. All right, we are, we are bound together now. We are committed to one another. All right, this is a covenant between equals. There are some examples. Um, I was going to pop these up on the screen, and I have no idea what my technology is doing, so we're just going to look at a few of them together. Go please with me to, so you have Isaac and Abimelech, but let's look at Genesis 31. Genesis 31, you've got Jacob and Laban. You remember this? I mean, Jacob, Jacob had some relationship issues, let's just say that, right? <laughs> and Laban was one of the ones that he had this problem with. But they, they really make what we might call in our day a peace accord. Right? They, they come to terms with one another. In Genesis 31, they make a covenant. Notice verse 43. Laban says to Jacob, these daughters are my daughters, and these children are my children, and these flocks are my flocks. All that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these my daughters or their children whom they have borne to us? All right, so I, I, can't, I can't in good conscience, you know, slaughter you and my grandchildren, and I can't do that. So let's do this. Let's come to an agreement. All right, verse 44. Now, therefore, come, let us make, here's our word, a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone. What do you think that is? That's your token right there. And set it up as a pillar. And then Jacob said to his brethren, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. 
And they ate there upon the heap. Oh, that's another, uh, commonly, not always, but commonly you will see a meal enjoyed together at, at the initiation of a covenant. Oh, guess what else they do at weddings? They stuff their faces, right? I mean, right? It, 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 all of this tradition is not, it doesn't just come out of thin air. It actually comes from the covenant uh, ceremony, the, the normal means of, of making a covenant. So here's what they do. They, they say, okay, I'm going to set up a token. You set up a token. It's this little pile of stones, this altar, if you want to call it that. All right, we're going to eat a meal together, and we're going to commit to one another, and we're not going to cross this line. So they, there's a barrier, a physical um, marker there. I'm not going to cross this way. You're not going to cross this way. We're going to leave each other alone. We're not going to kill each other. And that's their, that's their peace accord. So this is a, an example of, of a, um, a covenant in Scripture. Go over to 1 Samuel with me. 1 Samuel, remember this? Remember David and his good friend Jonathan? Saul was out to kill David, but Jonathan, Saul's son, had a special relationship with David. Beginning of chapter 18, when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day, and he would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a what? A covenant, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword, and bowed his belt. Now David goes on to make some commitments to Jonathan. In fact, if you read the story of David, you see those enduring covenants that last even after Jonathan's well off the picture. right? And he keeps his covenant even to Jonathan's own children. Right? So, so they make some commitments together. They, they honor one another. They enter in this, this relationship that even, even goes beyond death. And I mean, it even goes to their children. That's how serious this commitment that they are uh, making to each other. You can look up some of the rest of these and read them. And I think you might actually enjoy doing that and looking for the little, the little clues of the covenants that are, that are there. Um, Job makes this kind of metaphorical covenant, right? He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes in Job 31 and then the one that we've already talked about Proverbs 2 in verse 17 <clears throat> marriage is referred to as a covenant for whoever for uh, excuse me who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God All right so he's speaking about the immoral woman and, and part of the sin that is involved there is the forsaking of the, the covenant of marriage. This is how it's spoken of in the Old Testament. So these are just some examples that we see in Scripture. You could actually very easily go to extra-biblical literature and discover not only amongst the Hebrews, but uh, even, around the, even among the surrounding nations. This was a practice that was participated in, this entrance into covenant. Now, we've been talking in all of these examples about the parity, the, the equality covenant. This is equals. These are peers. They are both entering into it voluntarily. It's much like a contract or a partnership. There was also, secondly, a covenant between a superior and a subordinate. A a covenant between a superior and a subordinate. So this is a situation in which there is not equality between the two parties. So a good example of that would be Joshua 9. Do you remember this account? Joshua 9, God has told the children of Israel, to utterly destroy the Canaanites. And the Gibeonites get this great idea. Let's trick the Israelites into thinking that we are from far away, that it is safe for us to make, if you're using an old King James, the word is translated league. Let us make a league with you. 
the word is covenant. Let's make a covenant. Why? Because Israel was a, a, a would-be conqueror. Now, if Israel had come in and had conquered that nation, then they would have come to terms with this kind of a, a peace accord, like we referred to earlier. But they want to preempt that. They want to preempt having this war. So we're going to come and we're going to make a covenant. Basically, we're, we're bowing to you. We are submitting to you. We are saying, don't destroy us, please. All right, this is not a relationship of equality. This is a relationship of conqueror and conquered in this the second type of covenant between a superior and a, and a subordinate. Uh, we see a few other examples, uh, Jabesh, Gilead, and the Ammonites. They're in 1 Samuel. In Ezra 10, the prophet is calling out Israel for their sin, specifically their sin of intermarriage that had been forbidden. And, and they respond by making a covenant with God in the first part of Ezra 10. Now, those are all important, and those are all um, significant to note. But the, the covenants that really matter to us in our Bible study are the covenants that God makes toward men. The covenants that God offers to men. In case you didn't know, God is not our equal. Just want to clear that up in case there's any doubt, right? So we are talking, when we're talking about covenants with God, we're talking about what? We're talking about a superior and a subordinate. And by the way, when you're the superior... You're holding all the cards, right? You do not have to enter into covenant with these people that you're about to destroy. Why do you do that? Mercy. Which is why the covenant is so closely linked to the mercy of God. God doesn't have to enter into covenant with people. He doesn't need us. We don't contribute anything to him. Covenant is entirely a function of his mercy and grace. It's a superior, a far superior, and a subordinate. And so these are the covenants that, we're, of course, we're going to notice. When we, when we get to this, this covenant that there's not equality, that there's a superior and a subordinate, there's actually can be broken down into two more subdivisions under that main point. So... This covenant between a superior and subordinate actually then has two different types of covenants under that. First, there's the unconditional covenant. This is sometimes called a grant or a royal grant or a unilateral covenant. This is an unconditional covenant. The fulfillment of these covenants rests completely on the faithfulness of the one initiating the covenant by the superior. And this is... Many of the covenants that we see in the New Testament, right? So some of the main covenants are the Noahic covenant, for example. The covenant with Noah to never destroy the earth by water again. You remember this? We'll study it in depth here in a few weeks. That is not based on any merit that Noah brings to the equation. In fact, it is, it is not based on, Noah, if you do this, then I will do this. That language is not in the covenant at all. It is God, in His grace, making a commitment, making a covenant. Same thing for the Abrahamic covenant. Same thing for the priestly covenant. Same thing for the, for the new covenant. There is, on the other hand, these... these vassal covenants, the conditional covenant. So there's the unconditional, and then there's the conditional covenant. These, these treaties were used in the ancient, ancient Near East. These are sometimes called suzerain vassal covenants. All right, That's just big fancy language that historians use to describe this covenant that is entered into when a, and a would-be conquered people say, hey, can you have a little mercy on us we will serve you. We will be 
your vassal. We will submit to you. We will not fight against you. We will serve you if you don't destroy us. And so they enter into this kind of peace treaty where there are two sides, there are two obligations. Right? If those people who were in that treaty, the subordinates, if they rose up and rebelled, then they are no longer keeping their obligations. They are no longer keeping their portion of the covenant. And the covenant was, if you do this, I will withhold this. Or if you do this, I will do this. And in fact, much of the medieval society was predicated on this type of a covenant. Right? You would have a, a lord of the manor, and someone would come to him and say, I'm destitute. I can, I can no longer feed my family. Please help me. And he would basically say, okay, come be my slave, and I'll take care of you. And that's really how the, the manor system worked. person who was destitute had no hope of survival would come to the lord of the manor, and he would take him in. He would say, I will care for you. I will care for your family. I will feed you. I will give you a place to stay. And all you have to do is serve me for the rest of your life. Now, to Western Americans, I mean, that sounds like serve you for the rest of my life. Oh, my goodness. But you think about a person who's about to starve to death and how gracious it is that now he has, has a, a warm place to, to sleep at night. He has a roof over his head. He and his children are cared for. I mean, this is rather merciful because the Lord of the manor doesn't have to do that. He could say, go your way, starve to death, see if I care. Right? So this is, this is kind of the, the atmosphere of the, of the medieval period. One who is, is wealthy can choose to have benevolence, poured out, you know, should choose to pour out his benevolence on someone who is needy, and in exchange, the needy one, the subordinate, serves that person. These are conditional, right? You do this. I do this. That's our agreement. We would probably put this in terms of, of a voluntary partnership, except that this is not two equals, right? This is someone who is superior and uh, a subordinate. So an example of this is the Mosaic Covenant. Have you ever read the giving of the law? God says over and over and over again, you do this and I will bless you in this way. You do this, you obey in this way, you submit in this way, I will bless you. When you stop doing that, and God knows that they will, <laughs> then I will pour out judgment upon you. Now, now, keep this in mind because this is the context. I mean, these covenants, not just this particular one, but the covenants overall, are the context for the entire Old Testament. Now, one other, one other kind of little note that I want to point out to you along the way is that sometimes unconditional covenants have within them kind of elements of conditionality. All right, here's what I mean by that. So, so we love to get those chocolate-covered strawberries, especially around like, um, like uh, Valentine's Day and stuff, right? So, so suppose I go and I get chocolate-covered strawberries, not just for my wife, but for, for, the, for the girls too, and I bring those home and I set those on the table. And suppose we have Brussels sprouts, which we don't really have in our house, but just hypothetically, right? And Julia, because Joanna would, wouldn't give us any trouble, but, but Julia, because she's in the room, uh, says, I don't want to eat my Brussels sprouts. And I say to her, this chocolate-covered strawberry right here, we've all had ours and there's one left. This one is yours. But you can't eat it until you eat your vegetables. Now, is that a conditional or unconditional? Well, yes, right? It's yours. I've given it to you, but you cannot enjoy the blessings of it. Like, if, if we want to put it in, like, Bible language. You cannot enjoy it until you have kept the conditions. So, sometimes we see that a little bit, too, right? So, the Deuteronomic covenant is the land covenant. The enjoyment of the land is contingent upon the obedience of the people, Yet legally, it's theirs. Right? So there's, I, I, do wanna, I just do want to kind of confuse you a little bit. Because right? as, as you work through some of these covenants, you're like, no, wait a minute, is this conditional or unconditional? Think about the fact that sometimes the full enjoyment of it, the full blessing of the covenant, is in the context of obedience. 
And so that, that, that is uh, present as well. So, so what? So what? I've given you a bunch of history, and I've given you a bunch of ancient Near Eastern culture, and why are we studying these? In fact, Pastor V, why are you taking a whole lesson to talk about all of this? Why don't you just preach through the covenants? I think it will do us good to understand the cultural, historical, biblical context. I think it will give us a greater appreciation as we move forward with context. So why study them? Well, we should study them because there's a sense in which the covenants apply to us. And, you ready for this? There's a sense in which the covenants don't. What do you mean by that? Think about it. There is a sense in which the covenants do apply to us, and there's another sense in which they don't. So how do the... How do the covenants help us? Well, let me clarify. Understanding the covenants significantly impacts our understanding of eschatology. Eschatology, E-S-C-H-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y, in case you're writing that down. That's just the study of last things. That's the logos, the word concerning the eschatos, the end. The eschatology. So how we understand these covenants actually is going to have repercussions all the way into our study, uh, our understanding of the book of Revelation. Because what started in Genesis was just the start. I mean, it really, there's, there's echoes of it all throughout the entirety of God's Word. So I'm actually moving from least significant to most significant in my, my four reasons for studying the covenants. Secondly, understanding the covenants gives us a context for studying the Bible. Understanding the covenant gives us context for studying the Bible, especially, especially the Old Testament. In fact, I'm going to go a little further, and I'm going to say that it's almost, almost impossible to accurately interpret the Old Testament without at least some understanding of the, of the covenants. Because this, this is so impactful in the way that everything is framed. I mean, God revealed himself in these covenants. And this ongoing revelation of God sometimes is an outgrowth of the covenants. The entire Old Testament is built on one or more of these covenants. You say, now wait a minute. How is that? Well, think about it. What is Genesis about? Genesis is about how God chose a specific people in the person of Abraham, who was the father of a nation. That's the Abrahamic covenant. The, The book of Genesis is the history of the Abrahamic covenant. And then what do they do? They exit. And they go to this mount called Sinai. And now you have the Sinaitic covenant, or the Mosaic covenant, if you want to call it. Right? And now we're talking, right, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then it's kind of repeated, like this covenant's kind of reiterated now with the land covenant, what's called the Deuteronomic covenant or the Palestinian covenant. It's this whole conversation that God has with the people about the enjoyment of the blessing of the land, which, by the way, was an outgrowth of the promise that God gave to Abraham, right? I'm going to give you all this land. Right? So, so now, we're, now we're a couple couple things downstream, but we're, we're still reflecting on these covenants that God has made with his chosen people. And then we have the history of how God worked through his people to keep the covenant that he had made. And then we come to the greatest king, David. And God makes a covenant with David. You remember this? It's called the Davidic covenant. And we've got this whole book that celebrates the goodness of God, the mercy of God towards one whom he made a covenant with. I know Psalms is not entirely written by David, but a a good portion of it is, right? What is that? The whole praise that erupts from the book of Psalms is a celebration of the covenant relationship. They would not be close to God were it not for the covenant that had been articulated. So then you got the, all the history. What about the prophets? What is the message of the prophets? Hey, you remember what God told you? 
if you do this, if you obey, I will bless you. If you don't, I will judge you. That's all the prophets are saying. I mean, that's like the Cliff Notes version of every single prophet's message. Like you just got all the major and minor prophets. Like, obey and God will bless you. The reason you're in this mess, or the reason that the Assyrians are on your doorstep and you're about to be in a mess, is because you have rejected the covenant promises. You have rejected your covenant obligations. And what are the prophets doing? They're calling them back to the covenant. Your entire Old Testament can be framed in the context of one of these covenants that God has made. So it is very, very important. If you want to understand, you know, I, I don't like these whole, you know, secret keys type stuff, right? But, but really, it kind of is. It's like the key that unlocks the understanding of the entire Old Testament when you understand um, the covenants. So it gives us context. It gives us context. And, and, of course, you've heard us emphasize again and again and again, context is important. Right? You don't want your words taken out of context. God doesn't want his words taken out of context either. So I'll give you an example. A couple years ago, there was this debate, remember, that Ken Ham had with, yeah, the, the, yeah, the science dude, right, science guy, the, the pretend scientist. Um, oh, we'll, we'll delete that from the tape. Um, <laughs> and, then, and at the end, they had this question and answer time, and somebody asked the question, something to the effect that, you know, do you take the Bible literally? For example, do you believe in stoning people for adultery? What? Like, Who believes that we are supposed to stone people for adultery? Like, no serious-minded student of the Bible believes that. Well, but don't you take the Bible seriously? Yes, I do. In fact, I take it so seriously that I want to know what the context is for that admonition to stone those caught in adultery. What's the context? Mosaic Covenant. You see what I mean? And so, so people will snatch things out of context all the time. It's like, did you read the rest of it? Did you read the verses before? Did you read the chapters before and after? Did you read the whole? Have you read the whole Bible by any chance? Right? Context matters. Context matters. And, and the context of the Old Testament is covenants. Like, all throughout. Um, so... The prosperity gospel, I've referred to it before, rises and falls on violently snatching things out of their context. And I'll just drop it in over here because it sounds good. And nobody's going to take the time to read the context. So send me your money. Right? I mean, that's, that's what the prosperity gospel is. It's verses out of context, the, ver- the few verses that they use. So, so context matters, and, and understanding the covenant gives us the context for the entire Old Testament. So this is what I mean when I say there is a sense in which the, context do, the, uh, the covenants do not apply to us. I don't mean that they're not relevant. They are highly relevant. What I mean is I am not necessarily part of that covenant group. So... God did not promise me children as the sands of the sea. Thank the Lord. (laughs) But he promised it to Abraham. And it's still important. And it's important to understand, and it's important to understand in the context. But here's the thing. There's another sense in which these covenants do apply to us, because understanding the covenant shines a light on the timeless character of God. God keeps his word. God fulfills his covenants. And that, above all, is the thing that we must learn by observing these covenants. God does what he says he will do. The covenants shine a light on the timeless character of God. He is faithful. He's a covenant-keeping God. And so every time we read one of the covenants, even if, it, even if we will not have children of the sands of the sea, right? it's still important because there's a timeless truth there that God makes commitments to people upon whom he will have favor. 
God has, I'm going to read this to you from, there's a little more quote than I usually read, but this is, this is really good. This is how one author explained it. God has a plan in history that he is sovereignly executing. The goal of that plan is for him to be in relationship with people whom he has created. It would be difficult for people to enter into relationship with God whom they do not know. If his nature were concealed, obscured, or distorted, an honest relationship would be impossible. In order to clear the way for this relationship then, God has undertaken as a primary objective a program of self-revelation. He wants people to know him. And the mechanism that drives this program is the covenant. And the instrument is Israel. The purpose of the covenant is to reveal God. And so this morning, we sit here all as Gentiles, at least to my knowledge, all of us Gentiles, not part of the Abrahamic covenant, yet blessed by it, richly blessed by it. And that's the fourth reason we should study the covenant, because God reveals himself through them, but, but as we peer into them, we see that understanding the covenant causes us to see how blessed we are through these covenants. And the ultimate blessing is in Jesus. You say, I didn't think the covenants had anything to do with Jesus. <laughs> they have everything to do with Jesus. Right? I mean, God says to Abraham, through you, all of the nations will be blessed. Through you, these people living in 2020 on a continent that hasn't been discovered yet, none of whom have any Jewish blood, will be blessed. What's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Right? I mean, you, move, you fast forward to the Davidic covenant. One day there is one David who will sit on your throne, and that throne will last forever. It's Christ. The fulfillment of these blessings that are, that are promised in the covenant pour out upon us. We are richly blessed because of these covenants. And so there is a great deal of re relevance. There's a great deal of timelessness, both as we understand the character of God and as we see the covenants uh, implemented, kept through the person of Jesus Christ. So again, Read another author. The value of the Old Testament is the way in which it presents God as a living God, one who is dynamically alive and active in self-revelation, not simply the prime mover or pure actuality of a philosophy. He is that, of course, but he is much more. He is the God of creation, providence, and redemption. He is the God who makes himself known in the mighty acts with which he breaks into the course of history. And this picture of God in the Old Testament prepares us for the supremely redemptive, mighty act which he wrought in sending his son into the world for our deliverance and raising him from the dead. And so as we embark on our study, we are reminded of a God who is faithful, a God who keeps his promises, we're reminded that the covenants are important to us because they, they reveal God himself. The God who is then more clearly revealed in the person of Jesus Christ who came to fulfill many of these covenant obligations that God had, God had made. And so we praise Christ. We praise God this morning because the covenants are ultimately woven into who Jesus Christ is. Our God is faithful. We celebrate that this morning. And we th are thankful for his faithfulness seen in the person of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we embark on this study, we pray that it would be helpful to us. I pray that we would see you afresh and anew in the story of you revealing yourself through your commitments to men 
whom do, who, who do not deserve your grace, your mercy. I'm going to give you a moment to remain bowed before the Lord, to speak to Him, and to just reflect on the goodness of who He is as a covenant-keeping God. And so, Lord, now we commit this study to you, asking you to, be, to help us better understand you, to understand the character of an almighty God seen in the person of Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen. All right, let me take a moment to make a few announcements for us, and then uh, we will be... Dismissed. Tonight, ladies, you are back on for your Bible study. Um, by the way, unless the schedule, in case the schedule seems a bit off to you, it is intentional. You are meeting the week before. Bruce McAllister's with us, and then you're meeting again the week after, and that is by design. Uh, you have more chapters to cover. <laughs> that's, the, that's the bottom line reason. So, um, so you're meeting tonight, uh, six o'clock, ladies, Bible study, uh, book study here. Um, at uh, meets tonight. Uh, I do want to remind you again of the opportunity to go to family camp. Uh, you can let us know if you want more details on that. Next Sunday is a special week, and we're looking very much forward to having Bruce McAllister with us to do a study uh, specifically on stewarding the church. So he'll be with us for uh, the entirety of that day. Our 915 discipleship hour, our morning worship service at 1030, uh, dinner on the grounds following those two things, and then immediately on the heels of dinner on the grounds, we'll be having a panel discussion um, where it will be a more informal kind of question and answer um, uh, opportunity to, to query um, Dr. McAllister, and uh, probably I'll be a part of that as well. So um, look forward to that, plan on that. There is a link in the um, bulletin, the email bulletin, for you to sign up for dinner on the grounds. That's, I believe, all the announcements I have right now, so why don't we stand and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, dismiss us with your blessing. Use us in your service as we go. This week, may we reflect on the character of our covenant-keeping God. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.